Another incident this week as a Piper Saratoga conducts a successful wheels-up landing in Bankstown Airport in New South Wales. But what would you do if you were faced with this situation? Bitumen or grass? Engine running or shut down? The online advice is certainly divided and, quite frankly, driving me nuts. In this episode, we're going to discuss the do's and don'ts in undercarriage failures. All that and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 90 of the Flight Training Australia podcast, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. How you going? You all miss me? Thank you for the messages. I was absolutely shagged last week and I needed a week off and it was stressing me out. Oh, I've got to get a podcast out and um, I'll do it on Wednesday, I'll do it on Thursday and I said, you know what, I'm just going to relax, take the week off and uh, focus on catching up on everything. Um, and here we are, back again. So welcome to everyone listening from the far depths of Australia, down in Tasmania, up to Broome, across to Cairns, down to Perth and everywhere in between. It's uh, fantastic to have you all listening and, of course, all the international listeners as well that are joining us. Ever-increasing audience, it's uh, just fantastic to have you all and have your support. Still receiving messages, reviews, uh, it's just great. So thank you, everybody. And for those that are up in Darwin and we've run into each other at the shops or uh, at the airport, it's uh, fantastic to meet you all and hear your stories and how your training's going and your, your job searching and... Uh, Whatever I can do to assist, I am more than happy to do so. So, yep, I was uh, flat out at uh, Paspali Aviation, as I've said, doing my Mallard type rating. What a fantastic aeroplane. Um, absolute honour and a privilege to have done that. I'm uh, now all checked to line. Well, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm checked out on the aircraft. I'm doing the line training now. And uh, joining the, the plan is to join the check and training team at Paspali more so to uh, do the flight testing for the actual check-in trainers and to help uh, build up that training capacity in the organisation. As one would expect, uh, an aircraft so unique as the Mallard and uh, many other examples like it, um, it's really hard when you get into this type rating category to find suitably qualified people with all the, the ticks in the boxes to, to do these roles and uh, not to mention the potential costs. So... It's fantastic to be a part of. I uh, start line flying in about a week's time and uh, no doubt on uh, social media and everything else you'll hear more about that and we'll talk about that as, as the time comes. But it's a fantastic aeroplane. It is unique that it is uh, type rated. There's only three in the world being uh, an extension of the US turbine variant or the uh, the, the Frakes variant and it is uh, – Unique to the Australian conditions, it's been designed to fly, uh, purpose flying for what, what they do with the, the pearling farms and uh, crew transfers and the areas that it needs to fly into. So there's quite a few differences. And it was designed then to be uh, classified as a multi-crew type rated aircraft. So that's why it's a type rating and uh, had to have the ATPL multi-crew, which um, already held with the... Uh, the ATPL, but when it did the MCP uh, or the MCC training to refresh and all that and uh, have used it already. Multi-crew operations is, is fantastic and very, very different to single pilot. 
and I will talk about that another day as well. Australian Aviation Awards coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm heading over to Sydney on the 28th. Very much looking forward to that. Got my suit today. Looking pretty schmick if I say so myself and um, really looking forward to that evening and meeting everyone there. Yeah, fantastic uh, event. It should be really great to meet everybody and celebrate everyone's achievements. And like I said, looking forward to hopefully bringing home the award and uh, sharing it with you all. All right, today's episode. So on the weekend, on Friday, Bankstown Airport, there was an uh, incident with the wheels up landing. And uh, before I get into that, to start with, I believe most of you dedicated listeners out there, and uh, again, thank you all, are likely familiar with my perspective on the phenomenon of online trolls who just persist in making foolish, nonsensical remarks wherever personal opinions about incidents and accidents emerge following news reports. It just seems there's always someone who magically possesses an all-encompassing understanding of precisely what transpired, the exact details of how and why, and an expert analysis of the pilot's missteps and uh, mistakes. This behaviour is without a doubt just, to me, the most demeaning, offensive, discourteous action that one aviator can direct towards another. It brings to mind a quote uh, by Abraham Lincoln, "'It is better to remain silent than be thought of a fool.'" than to speak and remove all doubt. And there are certainly some uh, doing very well at that. All right, so in all seriousness, cease the chatter. Your commentary is falling on deaf ears. You just look like a fool. If you have something insightful um, to input to the group and that holds value, then I encourage you to share it and assist enlightening others. However, assuming, as was done in this incident, the uh, instructor pilot managed to land without... uh, you know, that was claimed to have not landing, uh, deploying the landing gear, whether any factual basis at all, or even watch the report that they were commenting on, uh, where it was very clear that news crews, ambulance fire, and everyone was all in position ready for the aircraft to then perform the emergency landing half an hour later. So this behavior is just toxic. It appears to be a prevalent issue in the age of social media. So it's certainly not unique to us, but I fully respect freedom freedom of speech. It's a fundamental right. It's imperative that we extend to others the same we expect uh, respect we hope to receive. But let's change the time, folks. It's it's really let's rally behind our fellow pilots instead of trying to impress everyone with our own wisdom and ending up making fools of ourselves. All right, remember these pilots that are in these incidents or accidents were you, and they read these things as well. So it's just really simple. How would you feel being in their shoes, reading comments that are questioning your competence and your professionalism when you knew you did a bloody good job? So let's put an end to it. And if you spot a colleague or a friend or someone you know making such a comment, just have a private chat with them and tell them to pull their heads in. All right, I've got that out of my system. Let's get into the good stuff, which is the gear up landing. Let's get some facts and figures into the discussion rather than uh, ideas. So... Just to recap the incident, it's a Piper Saratoga aircraft um, equipped with retractable undercarriage gear. It's a six-seat aircraft uh, ex- executed an emergency landing on Friday due to the malfunction of the landing gear. Now, as I've just said, the specific details and reasons uh, will be revealed in due time, but for the current discussion, it's irrelevant because I'm not talking about this particular incident itself but more the act of a undercarriage failure. So for whatever reason, the undercarriage was stuck in a retracted position. It didn't come down by itself. The manual extension obviously didn't work. So 
The aircraft managed to touch down safely. Both the instructor and student emerged unscathed and uh, precisely the desired outcome that training protocols are aiming for. So well done, guys. Great job. Really nice landing and um, a fantastic experience for the student, although sure, mildly traumatic at the time, um, to, to witness firsthand how, how to deal with it and see how the training all comes together, resulting in a good outcome. So let's get into the hypothetical scenario. What would have you done? How would you have handled the approach? Numerous viewpoints are circulating, are circulating, but many seem to be founded on misconceptions and inaccurate information. So let's go through it all together so that if this does happen and you encounter a similar situation, you can make the most informed decision possible leading to a safe outcome. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, or the ATSB, does offer comprehensive data on such incidents, and I just did a quick search without really refining it too much um, to see that, yeah, there's some interesting findings. So since 2010, there's been over 2,800 documented cases of landing gear anomalies, uh, failures, tyre blowouts, or incidents of pilots neglecting to extend the gear. So regardless of the cause, a significant number. So moreover, it's worth worth noting that this is more likely to be just the tip of the iceberg. I can tell you there will be plenty more that would go unreported. The encouraging aspect, however, is that none of these have resulted in fatalities. So in the event of recognising a gear failure, and let's focus primarily on the failure to extend, your initial course of action should be to locate a safe area, follow the checklist, rather relying on memory. And I have discussed this previously, that this is a classic non-immediate emergency item that is no need to start trying to do things by memory and potentially make a rather simple uh, situation more complex by making mistakes. So most commercial operators are going to incorporate this procedure as part of their phase two checks or their read and do, read and perform checklist. Should it become apparent that the gear won't extend, your next step should be to identify the nearest suitable aerodrome in the vicinity. What is that? Well, ideally, a hard runway, preferably paved, with emergency services available if at all possible. So, question number one. Why opt for a bitumen or asphalt runway? Let's address this. So, upon touchdown... These surfaces facilitate the transfer of energy forward due to their smooth texture. The aircraft is going to hit the ground. It's going to slide forward, continuing in the trajectory that it touched down and come to a stop. Now, before you start worrying, well, what about the sparks? Let me relax you on that one. The risk of fire is exceedingly low. Remember, these aircraft have been designed with some thought behind them. It would require an extraordinary forceful impact, causing the aircraft to land at a severe angle on the wingtip and potentially rupturing fuel tanks. So really unlikely. Furthermore, the actual damage sustained during a wheels-up landing is actually really minor. A few antennas and panels might need replacement along with a lick of paint. Admittedly, yes, sparks may fly, but they're not going to be substantial. The fact that the aircraft sliding along the runway indicates there's going to be minimal friction on these surfaces and it will go some distance before it comes to a stop. It doesn't sort of hit the ground and just, you know, like a car hitting a wall. All right. It is important to note that fire necessitates three elements, heat, oxygen, 
and a fuel source. So clearly, it's out in the open air, so we've got oxygen. Liquid fuel won't ignite in this context, though. It requires fuel vapor mixing with air to become combustible. So the probability of this occurring is incredibly low. As I said, the fuel tanks, fuel cabling and wiring, everything, it's all designed not to just break a rupture, and it's not that hard an impact. So you might get some sparks, but that's about it. Fuel should stay where it's supposed to be, in the tanks, and you're not going to have an issue. All right, so what about landing on grass, though? Because online, this seems to be quite the natural option. Now, I've got two choices. I could sit on the bitumen, I could sit on the grass. I'm going to pick grass. Why? Because it's softer, all right? That makes perfect sense. But when talking about landing an aeroplane, not the case. All right, grass, grass surfaces might seem appealing because it is softer. However, the reality of this is less forgiving. The top layer might appear even, nice, beautiful cut grass, but what lies beneath? There's unevenness. There could be uh, hidden dangers, rocks, little ditches. The aircraft touching, well, coming to contact with these surfaces is likely just to dig in and uh, potentially flip or could even come to a complete halt and cause the aircraft to break apart. This now is leading to a situation where fuel tanks could indeed rupture and increase the chance of fire. All right, so this is going to result in injury coming to a sudden stop as well. So again, it's not the ideal scenario uh, contrary to popular belief. All right, now you might be wondering about, okay, fine, so I'm going to land on the bitumen, but what about the fuel drains? Yes, well, these exist in low-wing aircraft, they obviously exist in high-wing aircraft, but they're going to be touching the ground potentially in low-wing aircraft. And that is certainly a consideration. But given the way wings are designed, they have this thing called dihedral, and the gascolator drains, the fuel drains, are typically slightly further out on the wing. So they shouldn't be coming into contact. Though anything that is directly on the belly, again, a low-wing aircraft will be designed slightly different to a high-wing aircraft, but they will be either recessed or they'll be a um, need, what do they call The needle up the fuel drain style. There you go. There's a technical term. All right. So there's going to be quite a bit of protection and it's going to take a bit of effort to grind away at that before that's going to cause fuel to spill. All right. So there's a very minimal chance of this happening. So focus on the landing itself. We do have two cases, low-wing aircraft versus high-wing aircraft. So low-wing aircraft, an argument could be made for leaving the flaps up, just purely to minimise damage. You put the flaps down, they are most likely going to touch, uh, touch the ground and it's going to come into contact with the aeroplane. Now, sure, aeroplanes are insured, but the number one priority is everyone walking away. But if we can minimise aircraft in a sensible way, then why wouldn't you? So lowing aircraft, I would look at the stats. How much does the flap being extended have an effect on the stall speed of the aircraft? And maybe just a stage of flap, not necessarily full flap. That's something you're going to need to look at with your particular aircraft. Again, I can't set a one-size-for-all uh, rule in this aspect because there are quite a few variables at play. All right, but... Conversely, high-wing aircraft, I would definitely have half to full flaps to minimise that touchdown speed. However, 
the landing needs to be executed well. If we come in and try and hold the aircraft off the runway for too long, we could dissipate that speed and then we're going to come down quite hard. So we want to be transferring the energy onto the runway in a forward trajectory, not a vertical one. Remember, high-wing aircraft typically going to have a Fowler flap design, which is the split between the trailing edge of the wing and the flap, which is going to re-energize the aircraft and the, the, uh, the flaps and minimize that stall speed and improving some stability. So definitely a consideration. Now, the touchdown itself is reminiscent of recent experiences I've had while flying the floating hull or for those more acquainted akin to landing a tail aircraft using a wheeler landing technique. Your goal is to achieve the smoothest vertical speed possible. All right, so 50 to 100 feet vertical speed um, so that as we touch down, it's the impact's minimal and, again, the forward trajectory is going to take over. Resist the urge to shut down the engine without... Uh, you know, pulling the mixture and, and stalling the aircraft or being in the need where you're going to have to go around. Once you're on the ground, by all means, proceed to shut down the mixture, engage the fuel cutoff, turn the master switch off. Once that's done, follow your uh, crew member or the, uh, the pilot, the instructor, whoever, and get everybody out of the aircraft. Despite early assurances of a low-fire risk, sure. You know, I said... There's no fire, but there's, there's still a chance. So why tempt fate needlessly? Just get out of the aircraft, move to a safe distance, especially if there's fire crews involved. That allows them to assess the situation and deal with it if need be without anybody getting in the way. So this is a planned event. Remember, this isn't typically going to happen unless you've done a, a wheels up and forgotten to put it down. So you would have briefed everybody on this. Now, on the topic of fire crews, just note that, that the practice of foaming runways is fairly outdated now, given now we have data that the chance of fire is is highly unlikely. And when the runway was foamed, the aeroplane tend to protract the, uh, <laughs> the landing glide, sit in ground effect and just fly right past it all. So we don't want to do that. All right. But if there is any fire, if it's a fuel fire, we're typically not going to use water because water is just going to... Um, join with the fuel, lift it to the surface and spread the fuel fire in a large area. So this is where dry powder or foam is definitely something you want to consider. Um, all right, so the next topic, what to do with the engine and the propeller? Well, there's a tendency among pilots to express dismay and climb, why didn't you save the propeller? Let's have a look at that. Let's talk about top dead center not to mention the insurance having its own role in aeroplanes. So when an engine stops, when you shut down normally, how does your propeller stop? It's typically going to be positioned by the crankshaft's hub at top dead centre. So it's not a matter of turning the key or trying to hit the starter motor and get it to stop in a specific spot. So if you look outside, in a Cessna, it's typically going to be slightly left of the vertical depending on 10, 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock position kind of thing, depending on whether you're sitting inside or looking at it from the front. So it's slightly left or right of vertical. So this position occurs because as the engine halts, the, the engine's compression catches as it winds down, preventing it to sort of go past that top dead center point, which is traditionally where the spark ignites, and then it's going to come to a stop. So you pushing the button 
any attempt to manipulate the propeller's position is it's generally going to be fruitless. It's not going to do it unless you just happen to get it to tick past and then it flicks backwards and hits the opposite uh, position and then comes back into a slightly down attitude. There are some airplanes that the propeller will stop in a three o'clock to nine o'clock position, left to right, horizontal. And if your airplane does that, well, great. You're not going to hurt the prop. Otherwise, it's just a fruitless attempt. All right. The fact is that if you have one prop or three, uh, sorry, or two blade prop or three or four, usually something's going to come into contact with it. If that's going to happen, the engine's going to be bulk stripped and inspected regardless. So it's it's distracting you from your prime focus, which is landing the airplane safely. All right. There have been cases where pilots have shut down the engine, they've stuffed up their approach and sadly stalled the aircraft. And there has been a case in the States that I know of where fatality uh, occurred. So just don't do it. There's just no need. The engine rotating will transfer the engine or the energy through the prop through the engine is typically going to minimize damage rather than uh, just hitting a stationary blade. Again, that's contentious. Don't everyone start writing in. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an engine manufacturer. But uh, regardless of any of that, it's uh, it's not going to save anything. So just don't worry about it. Get the aircraft on the runway safely. All right. Now, that's all well and good if it's three uh, wheels not coming down. What if it's the nose wheel? Well, the nose wheel is not such a bad situation. You've got two main wheels. Again, you land, you hold the nose wheel off as long as you can whilst trying to lower the nose wheel or the nose cone onto the ground. We'd rather it not sort of be held off and then thud down because, uh, again, it could do more damage. And it will just slide along the bitumen, make a horrible scraping noise and come to a stop. But everyone's going to be good. Typically, though, it's going to be maybe one of the main gear. And this does put you in a scenario where do you land with the nose and one main gear down, meaning it's going to land on a wingtip? Or if you are able to, do you raise the two gear and do a belly landing? And it kind of depends on the scenario where you're going to be landing. A full belly landing is going to be more controllable than having one wheel down. Once it touches, obviously it's going to pull in that direction and, uh, it just depends on what the surroundings are like. It shouldn't go far, but it depends on how you do it. If you left one gear down, yes, that might save the props on at least one engine. Um, so that could be a rational choice or decision to make, but just have a think about that scenario. But it's certainly not the ideal one, especially if you're in an aircraft such as a 310 or Comanche where you've got wingtip tanks. Uh, you're going to be pretty much putting weight on that tank. Again, shouldn't rupture. But I would definitely be thinking, you know, twice before putting any weight and friction against that particular tank if it was avoidable at all. But again, the gear might be fixed and uh, stuck in that position and you might not have any choice over it. So it's just something you're going to have to manage. All right, final note though is should you find yourself in the unsettling position of forgetting to extend the landing gear and subsequently executing a landing, it's imperative not to attempt a go-around in a panic. It might sound amusing, but there are instances recorded online on good old YouTube where this very thing has happened and been filmed. So, and again, this happened at a Baron. 
And of course, the propellers were completely compromised, the engine damaged, and they subsequently failed and the aircraft crashed and the pilot killed. So once the undercarriage is compromised, the propellers functionality is compromised. It's it's there's no turning back. The mistake has been made. There's no going around saving face, trying to put the wheels down and hope no one noticed and saw it. All right. Once it's down, leave it on the runway, shut the aircraft down, and uh, you're just going to have to put that down to learning. Priority is safety and knowledge. Checklists. Okay, complete your checklist properly. Go through the drills. Go through the emergencies. If you're having a chance to either there's a check, check pilot um, within a company or as a private pilot or commercial pilot just flying with instructor for your flight review, practice your manual gear extension procedures. Understand the differences from the different aircraft you go through. And uh, I hope that helps clear up what you should and shouldn't do in the event of a undercarriage failure. Everything I've said, serve as a guide, of course. Look at the POH, follow any uh, guidance or instructions in that as well. And uh, hopefully this can be a, a good resource a resource to draw from in uh, times of uncertainty. Make good, clear decisions, good, informed decision-making. Take your time and ignore everything else going on on the ground and just focus on your landing and do a good job. And uh, the aircraft can get fixed. All right, guys, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will uh, see you next week. I will be here, don't worry. And uh, please give all your uh, comments and feedback to me. Any questions, you know where to reach me. All the details are in the episode description below. All right, until then, blue skies and remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.